you can uh, check that on there, that I'd be willing to be on guest services and drop it in one of the baskets on your way out. We'd be thrilled to have you join us and serve in that capacity. A few years ago, our church walked through a book called uh, Not a Fan, and it was a series based on that book by the same title written by Kyle Eidelman. Some of you might have been here for a part of that. It's a great book. Uh, In case you've never heard that book or weren't here, let me just share a little quote that kind of exposes the thesis of Eidelman's book. He says, fans don't mind him doing a little touch-up, but Jesus wants complete renovation. Fans come to Jesus thinking tune-up, but Jesus is thinking overhaul. Fans think a little makeup is fine, but Jesus is thinking makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required, but Jesus wants a complete remodel. I love this last sentence. He says, fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. All throughout Scripture, the thesis of that book plays out where we see the difference and the separation between those who would be fans of Jesus, admiring him from afar, enjoying the benefits of being around him, but there's a stark contrast between a fan and a follower of Jesus Christ. We see multiple examples of that in Scripture. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and I don't know about you, but when someone gives me free food, automatically I'm a fan. Amen? And so these people become fans of Jesus, but then um, in verse 66 in John chapter 6, Jesus lays down the gauntlet for those fans and says, hey, if you really want to be my disciple, here's what's required. And the Bible says in verse 66 that many of them walked with him no more. We see that distinction in Scripture. Uh, We certainly see that uh, when the account of Nicodemus We look at the account of the rich young ruler. Uh, In Acts chapter 8, we see Simon the sorcerer who is a big fan of all the miracle power that Jesus has. But then when Jesus says, hey, here's what it really costs to be my disciple, he said, I'm not interested in being a follower. Over the past couple of weeks, we've encountered Judas Iscariot, certainly a fan of being a part of Jesus' inner circle, a fan of maybe some of the inspirational teaching, certainly a fan of being the celebrity culture. But when it came time to expose whether or not he was a follower, he failed that test miserably. See, over and over in Scripture, we see the difference being painted between a fan of Jesus and an actual follower of Jesus Christ. And I would sum up the difference this way. A fan Once all the benefits, a follower is willing to embrace all the sacrifice. A follower counts the cost and finds it worthy. I invite you to take your Bibles. Once again, turn with me to Mark chapter 14, your phone, your Bible, your tablet, whatever you're using. If you want to look up version, we've uploaded some notes there for you to follow along as well on one of your devices. Uh, Mark chapter 14, we're going to continue to look at the last week of Jesus' life. If you remember this, uh, the first 10 chapters of the Gospel of Mark cover three and a half years. But chapters 11 through chapter 16, all of those chapters cover just the last week of Jesus' life. Some people call that last week Holy Week. Others would call it Passion Week. And so we've been looking at those events. And last week in chapter 14, we began to discover that there is a cost to following Christ closely. And so we're going to continue that uh, look this Morning in uh, chapter 14, uh, we're going to look at verses 32 through verse 50. Last week we learned that if you want to follow Jesus closely, you might be hated, you absolutely are going to be expected to sacrifice, and you may even be betrayed. What else does it cost to follow Christ? Well, we're going to pick up the text in verse 32 this morning. So if you've been in church or around church, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So chapter 14, verse 32. 
And then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And we went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And then he came the third time and said, now, can we just be honest? After twice, if Jesus is saying, what are you doing sleeping? Would you not have stayed awake, right? There's not some coffee in the garden somewhere. So he says this a third time. Verse 41 said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. That's what I say to my teenagers every morning. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so before we start digging into the text again, this is kind of the last week of Jesus' life. He's marching toward uh, his crucifixion, his false trials, beating all of those things. And so uh, in this Passion Week, this Holy Week, let me just remind you uh, of kind of the chain of events that have been playing out here in this last week of Jesus' life here in this chart. On Monday, uh, there was the triumphal entry. And so we looked at that uh, in Mark chapter 11. Uh, Then we started cleansing the temple. Uh, verses 12 through 25. And then on Wednesday, Jesus confronts leaders and he gives a little sermon to be prepared for the return of Christ whenever that happens. Pastor Chris taught on that. And then Thursday, uh, we see Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And then it's his uh, betrayal and rest. So, so we're on the events of Thursday. Uh, some would argue that the Garden of Gethsemane was so late into the day that it actually bled over into the early hours of Friday morning. So if you ever see uh, some accounts say this was Thursday, some say this was on Friday, that, that's not a contradiction. It's a technicality, depending on how late they think the events actually happen. But in verse 26, Jesus has uh, celebrates Passover there in the upper room. Uh, then in uh, verse, they go out to the Mount of Olives, uh, beginning there, and Peter, Jesus gives a prediction, and it's saying, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter says, no way, I would never, I would never do that, right? Didn't turn out so well. And so Jesus gave that prediction, the beginning in verse 32, uh, this is where we see them in the Garden of Gethsemane. So again, this is late, late, late Thursday night, maybe even the earliest morning hours of Friday, and this kind of last week of Jesus' life. And the word Gethsemane uh, literally means olive press. Now, the garden was located near the Mount of Olives. It was likely surrounded by a fence or a wall with a gated entrance. And so Jesus walks through this gated entrance, takes his three inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to experience to up until this point in time the greatest agony he had ever experienced in his life. Now here's what's interesting. When you study the Bible, the same three that saw him, Peter, James, and John, on the Mount of Transfiguration and all of his glory are the same three that are going to experience him in all of his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so here it is. We see once again what is required to be a follower of Jesus Christ as opposed 
to a fan and this playing out and this experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. So here's what I want you to see this morning uh, in this passage. If you want to follow Jesus closely, and that's the key word, closely, uh, what I want you to see is this, is that you will struggle with God's will. You will struggle with God's will. Now, let me let you know a little secret. There is no shortage of debate or confusion or speculation or theories taught when it comes to God's will. And so therefore, because there's so many things taught, so many things you've heard, there's a lot of struggle when it comes to the idea of God's will and following uh, Jesus Christ. And I think, basically, we could take all of those struggles and boil it down to two ways that people struggle. Jesus illustrates the second way people struggle with God's will, but let's walk through the one that Jesus did not struggle with because you and I will absolutely struggle with this aspect of God's will. So here's the first way you're going to struggle with God's will if you're trying to follow Jesus closely. You are going to struggle to discern God's will. You are going to struggle at times in your journey of following Jesus with discerning what exactly it is that God would have you to do and where he'd have you to go and who'd have you to be, all of those things. Now, let me make sure there's no confusion. Jesus is not struggling with discerning God's will here in this passage. I've heard and and, and listened to people teach before that, listen, God's will is so mysterious, so hard to discern, that even Jesus in the garden struggled with discerning God's will. And they would go to verses 34, 35, 36 and say, see, Jesus said, if it be your will, and they would conclude that he was ignorant of whatever God's will was for his life. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus knew exactly what the will of God was concerning his life. Let me just prove it to you real quick. Go back in chapter 14. Go back to verse 27, just a few verses earlier. Verse 27 in chapter 14, Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's fulfilled in verse 50. So Jesus knew exactly when it says, I'll strike the shepherd, it's his beating and his crucifixion. He knew exactly what God's will is for his life. So I'm not totally convinced. Go back a few more verses, back to verse 8, back to that incredible exchange where that woman breaks open that uh, alabaster flask and anoints Jesus with all of that. Go back to that uh, in verse 8. What's Jesus say? Chapter 14, verse 8, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand, listen to this, to anoint my body for burial. He knew exactly what's going on. He knew exactly how the story had been played out. He knew exactly what the Father's will was for us. He wasn't struggling with discerning God's will, even though he asked, Father, if it be your will. Listen to these parallel passages. This makes it as clear as can be. Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. You know exactly what's happening. Matthew 17, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. So in, in just a little bit in chapter 14, when these men come and, and capture him and, and take it, he's like, I had no idea this was going on. None of that. He knew exactly how the story was going to play out. It says they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Matthew 17, Matthew 20. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. 
And so at the end of chapter 14, when they come and seize him in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was not a surprise to him. He was not ignorant, discerning the will of God for life. He told them in advance, this is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to play out. This is how you're going to respond. He was not ignorant about discerning God's will. Now, but here's the problem. Let me let you know a little secret this morning. You're not Jesus. As a word of encouragement, turn and tell your neighbor, you're not even close. Would you just encourage him with that this morning? And because that is true, because we are not God in the flesh, there will be times that we do, in fact, struggle with discerning God's will. That's not why Jesus was asking, Father, if it be your will. We'll get to that. But there will be times that we struggle with discerning God's will. Let's just do a little unscientific research. Has there been a time in your life where you wondered, Lord, what would you have me to do in this situation? Lord, what would you have me to do in this relationship? Lord, what would you have me to do regarding this opportunity, this challenge, or this setback, or this whatever it is? If there's ever been a time you've ever wondered, Lord, what do you want me to do? Would you just raise your hand right now? Yeah, if your hand's not raised, no one likes you because the rest of us struggle, all right? There are seasons we're absolutely, we've struggled um, with that. And so the reality is there's so much confusion on the subject that last year, our book of the year uh, was uh, written on this very subject called The Word of God is the Will of God. Now, if you didn't read that last year, there's probably 10, 15 copies uh, in the resource room right outside these doors. I cannot encourage you enough to grab a hold of that. And I would agree with everything that's being taught in there. And I'm going to share some principles right out of that here this morning. Let me give you a 30,000 foot view big picture of this idea of the will of God and discerning the will of God because everybody in the room just about raised their hand and said, oh, absolutely, I've struggled with that and you will struggle with that, especially if you don't know what you're looking for in the first place. Now, so let's define the idea of a will. A will encompasses a person's awareness their desire, their planning, their decision, and their actions. Another word for will is the word uh, volition, which is the ability to weigh options and discriminate based upon the assessed value of all the options out there. Our wills are an imperfect reflection of God's will. And because they are imperfect, there is a struggle at times to discern his will so that we in turn could line ourselves up under what we believe to be the will of God for our lives. Now, so when it comes to the will of God, uh, there basically are three different ideas we need to understand. Now, I want you to listen. Listen closely. The first two are in the Bible, and I think that's good. Would you agree with that? The last aspect of God's will is not in the Bible, but it's the one most often taught. And so I can't, I don't, I can't reconcile that, but I've heard it over and over. So let me just give you big categories, three categories of God's will. And the last one is the source of so much spiritual anxiety and spiritual pride on the other end. All right? So the three categories of God's will, uh, first off, is God's sovereign will. This is God's sovereign will. And God's sovereign will is a clear declaration of what he will do, and it is uh, unalterable. The grand plan of redemption God has for this world to redeem the world to himself is the unalterable, sovereign will of God that God decrees, and therefore it will happen. Uh, In creation, when the Bible says that God spoke the world uh, into existence out of nothing, ex nihilio, uh, that is God's decreed, sovereign will. God decreed it would happen, and it actually happened. And so the sovereign will of God is unalterable. The sovereign will of God 
cannot be changed or altered based upon the individual decisions that you and I make. Now, some of you don't like that because you like control. But listen, take comfort that whatever God wants to happen, whatever God said will happen is exactly what will happen. Is that not comforting? The second thing I want you to understand about God's will is this. There is also uh, God's moral will. God's moral will. This is how he wants us to behave. And so the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual morality. So this is what God says, hey, I'm not causing that to happen clearly. That's happening in our world. He says, but this is what I desire for your life. This is my moral will for your life. This is how I want you to behave as an individual. Some have called this uh, God's written will. And God's moral will is the God-given prescription for human behavior inspired by the Holy Spirit and recorded for us in the words of Scripture. And so it's the type of person God wants you to become. So there's God's sovereign will, clearly taught in the Bible. There's God's moral will, the type of person he wants you to become, clearly taught in the Bible. Here's the third one that's often taught but not in the Bible. God's individual will. This is also sometimes called God's perfect will. Gary Friesen in his book, Decision Making the Will of God, calls this the dot theory. The reason he calls it the dot theory is because the goal in every situation, every scenario, is to find that one little dot, and you've got to get on the dot, and if you're not exactly in the perfect will of God on that dot, then at best, you're getting God's second best for your life, and at worst, you're just one choice away from ruining your life. And every, oh, there's so much spiritual anxiety that if I don't find the exact center of God's will and that little dot, and if I don't stand on it, then somehow I'm going to miss out on God's best for my life. And the worst is I'm going to ruin my life. Can you imagine the spiritual anxiety of every scenario, every decision in life, trying to discern this little dot to be in the exact center of God's will? I mean, like every decision filtering through that idea, that mentality. You know, like, you have to, do you want super size? I don't, Lord, do you want me? The answer is yes, by the way. The answer is always yes. And so lots of people uh, would, let me, let me illustrate this idea. It's easier to illustrate it. This idea teaches there's only one job in the whole world you could take and be in the center of God's will. And you better be careful because if you take the wrong job, your God's second best is, is the best you can hope for. There's only uh, one school you can attend and be in the will of God. Everything else is outside the will of God. There's only uh, one house you can live in in the whole world and be in the center of God's will. Don't get in the wrong house. Uh, here's, here's a big one. I'm so glad that we're past Valentine's Day because I can go ahead and say this one. There's only one person in the whole universe you can marry and be in the center of God's will. Now, some of you are like, hey, that's our story. I'm sorry, all right? Can we just... Uh, Think for that about a second. That, can we disagree that at some, if there's only one person in the whole world you could have married and been in the perfect center of God's will, can we disagree that at some point in time in human history, someone got outside the will of God and married the wrong person who was supposed to be married to someone else and set off a domino effect, and now no one can marry the person that they were supposed to marry, right? And then you get in a restaurant and you see some kids walking around and you're like, this feels weird, but I think, I think they're just supposed to be my kids. I don't know what's going on, right? And that's, but that's, and it sounds so uh, spiritual, but here's the thing. 
God gives us wisdom and parameters and guidance through the Word of God and the counsel of God and the people of God and the Spirit of God directs us all those things. But within the boundaries of what God, who God wants us to become, there's a lot more freedom than being paralyzed to think there's only one dot in every scenario that I've got to be in the direct center of God's will. It's not taught in the Bible, even though it sounds super spiritual. And if you don't understand that, then hear me this morning. If you don't understand that, you'll spend your whole life spiritually anxious, looking for signs and putting out fleeces, when in fact that was descriptive in the Bible, not prescriptive for us today. And so the reality is, some of you say, hey, I, I know that, I understand that, I've heard you teach that, I've read that, I've read, I agree with all of that. And so I'm free from all that, that anxiety about discerning God's will. That's not what Jesus, when Jesus said in verse 34 and 35, if it be your will, he wasn't trying to define God's will or discern God's will, he already predicted God's will for his life. He knew it. And so what Jesus was struggling with is the other aspect of God's will, and you will struggle with this as well. You will struggle to obey God's will. On one end, there's the struggle to discern God's will. But once you feel freedom in that and you understand, hey, within the boundaries of what God, the kind of person God wants me to become, I can make this choice or this choice and both would equally honor God. And I believe there's freedom in that. There still be times that you will struggle to obey God's will. And the reason is because obedience at times carries a heavy, even crushing weight to it. Now, in this passage, that's what Jesus is struggling with. When Jesus says, hey, if it, if it be your will, he's not trying to discern God's will. Like, oh, do, you want me to, do you want me to call down 10,000 angels? Do you, want me to, do you want me to have Peter chop someone's ear off? Oh, that does happen. <laughs> you know, what, you know, what do you, no, it's not any of that. He knows exactly how the script's playing out. He knows the exact sovereign will of God for all of redemption and his role in that. But when he says, Lord, if it be your will, let, let someone else, if there's another way to accomplish your sovereign will, I'm game for that. I'm totally open to someone else doing this. But not what you will, or not what I will, what you will, Lord. That's what he's struggling with, is obeying the heavy weight of God's will. Even though he knows it, it's still heavy. Look at verse 34. You say, how heavy was it? Verse 34 says this, and then he said to them, Peter, James, and John, is inner circle, right? My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. How sorrowful? Even to death. You see what he's saying? If these chief priests don't kill me, the weight of obedience feels like it's going to. Yes, Jesus was fully God, but he's also fully man. Verse 35 says he went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible... God, if there's another way to accomplish your sovereign will, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. In verse 36, he said, Abba, term of endearment. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. In other words, you're sovereign. You can accomplish your purposes any way you want. Take this cup, this cup of wrath, this cup of agony. Take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, either day, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus isn't asking about the will of God because he can't discern it. He's asking about the will of God because the weight of obedience is crushing to him. He's struggling so much that go back, go to verse 39. What's verse 39 say? Again, 
he went away and prayed. What does he pray? And spoke the same words. He goes back to the Father a second time and prays the same thing and says, Lord, all things are possible for you. And so under the banner of your sovereign plan, the weight of obedience is so crushing. And so if it's possible, let me ask you again, can someone else take this cup? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Listen, you will struggle to obey God's will. Now, I want to make it clear. The struggle in the garden on the way of obeying wasn't discerning, but Jesus was struggling nonetheless. And so what was he struggling with here? Well, it wasn't the primary cause of his anguish was not Israel's rejection, and it wasn't the disciples' desertion. The primary struggle was not the injustice of the religious leaders. It was not the mockery of the Roman soldiers or even the impending reality of his physical death that he knew was coming. The great agony that overcame Jesus in the garden was fueled first and foremost by the awful recognition that he would become the bearer of sin and the object of God's wrath. For the first time in all of eternity, he would be experienced alienation from his father being crushed as a sin offering on behalf of us. And so there will be times where obedience is so heavy, so crushing, so agonizing, so much suffering inherent in it that you'll struggle to obey God's will even when you've discerned it. That's the struggle. When Jesus says, hey, if it it be your will, he's not trying to discern. It's the heavy weight of obedience. Now, let me tell you what's missing. In both the seeker gospel and the prosperity gospel, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not. I'm not a fan of the prosperity gospel. I don't know if I've shared that on a time or 200. So if you're listening, say amen. Here's what's missing in those messages. Inherent in making hard choices is the reality of discomfort and suffering. And so this idea that the more obedient I am, the more prosperous and blessed I will be, doesn't jive with Scripture. What we see modeled in the garden in the life of Jesus, the more obedient I am, sometimes the greater I'll suffer. And the longer suffering goes on, the harder it becomes to joyfully submit yourself and to persevere in faith and battling unbelief. And so the the battle cry of, hey, come as you are, listen, that's true. But make no mistake, if you decide to stay and follow, you will not leave as you came. You cannot encounter Jesus and participate in the fellowship of his sufferings and remain as you were. He will change your life, and one of the vehicles is through suffering. Now, I don't know about you. I don't care for that. Amen? I just prefer to remain fat and sassy the rest of my life as opposed to suffering and hardship. I mean that hypothetically. Here's what I want you to understand. Despite what's being taught and peddled, Jesus is not an avenue to self-improvement. Jesus is an invitation to self-denial. That's the gospel. Mark 8, 34, deny yourself, take up my cross, and follow me. Jesus said if you want to inherit eternal life, you've got to lose your life. 
And my fear is that the seeker gospel and the prosperity gospel has produced a tremendous amount of fake Christians who want to add Jesus to their life because they're, they're thrilled with the uh, benefits and the inspirational teaching and, and all the you know, mercy and the grace and the help in times of trouble, all those things, and they love the eternal rewards. But inherent in their following Jesus, there's no margin or appetite for suffering. If that's your version of following Jesus, then here's what you've got to wrestle with. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is looking for fans, he's looking for followers, and sometimes in following him, you will struggle to discern his will for your life, and even once you have discernment on that, you will struggle to obey his will. This week I came across an article written by a professor where he kind of traced this thread of suffering all throughout Scripture. He says, hey, listen, this idea to come and deny yourself and suffering is a part of obedience and all those things, he said that is a theme or a thread all throughout redemptive history. They're just going to jot down all these examples. He said the suffering of the righteous at the hands of the wicked is not new in redemptive history. After the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, God gives the first promise of salvation mingled with a promise of suffering. Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, I'm going to offer redemption, but there's suffering. Job chapter 1, Job suffers the loss of his health, wealth, and children. Because of his righteousness among men, the devil attacks him. Joseph suffers false accusations of Potiphar's wife. Israel, God's chosen people, afflicted and enslaved for 430 years in Egypt. David, God's anointed one, hunted for several years by Saul, who was rejected by God. Jeremiah the prophet, persecuted by his own people. Zechariah killed for his faith. Jesus, the righteous servant of God in Isaiah, suffers because of false accusations of the scribes and Pharisees. Peter writes, listen to this. Peter writes, 1 Peter 2.21, To this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, listen, so that you might follow in his steps. What steps? Suffering. Suffering under the banner of obedience. Paul, defending his ministry, gives a detailed description of his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. And so here's the reality. Listen, if you're going to follow the Jesus of the Bible, you had better count the cost. And one of the costs is you will struggle with God's will. You will struggle to discern it, but even when, when it's clear, you will struggle to obey it. So count the cost following Christ. Here's the second thing I want you to see in these verses is this. Not only will you struggle with God's will at times and following Jesus closely, you will also struggle at times with standing alone. Now, if, if you're astute, you're like, hey, that's only the first point. We're 30 minutes in. I'm going to be late to lunch. You're not, I promise. Originally, when I laid this outline, I thought, oh, I'm going to develop this, and I'm going to develop this second point. By the time I got everything on paper I wanted to teach on the first one, I had little time left, but I cannot excuse this because this is in the passage, and it will show up in your real, everyday life. Let me explain. The closer that you follow Jesus, the clearer and deeper your convictions will come, and clear and deep convictions become lines in the sand. And if you stand with Jesus firmly, there will be those who distance themselves quickly because of your stand. 
And I think we understand that. If we're following Christ, when it comes to those who don't know Christ, right? Like we understand that we're in opposition against the world's value system. We understand that if we love Christ, there are those who hate Christ. We understand that. But when the struggle gets real is when it's those who are supposed to be professing Christians, when, when they walk away from us and we're left standing alone, that's hard. I understand if I'm standing for Christ and someone hates Christ and they're standing away from me and I'm all by myself. I get that. I expect that. But when the people who love Jesus leave me standing all alone, that's hard. That's hard. And so how does this abandonment happen? I think it happens two ways. We see them both here in the text. Uh, The first one we see in verse 37. Look at verse 37. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? And so there are some people that they'll, they'll, they'll ban you, they'll walk. You know why? Because this is weariness in doing good. Remember what he said earlier? Jesus said, hey, the spirit is willing. It's not that you're not interested in honoring the Lord. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so at times we get so discouraged, destroyed, uh, we get so angry when sometimes people aren't standing with us when we're standing for the Lord. Listen, sometimes there is a weariness in doing good. They've been persevering and they've just gotten tired. It's not that the Spirit's not willing, but the flesh is weak. So don't get discouraged by that. Don't condemn those people. Understand that. And the second reason we stand alone is there sometimes is an unwillingness to submit to the high cost of obedience. Look at verse 50. Verses 43 through 49 is betrayal and arrest of Jesus in Gethsemane. What's verse 50 say? Then they all forsook him and fled. Do you hear that? Not just Judas. Then they all forsook him and fled. All of a sudden it got real. That hey, if I'm going to follow him closely, it's costly. And there will be times when you're trying to follow him closely that it becomes costly and you'll be standing by yourself. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Because that is true, Your joy and your perseverance cannot come ultimately by who's standing around you. Your joy and your perseverance has to come for who you're standing for. Let me repeat that. Your joy and your perseverance cannot ultimately come by who's standing around you. It has to come by who you're standing for. Because people will abandon you. Sometimes because they're weary and doing good. Sometimes because the cost was too costly, people will abandon you. But here's the good news. He never will. He never will. You may be standing by yourself, but you'll be standing with him, and he's enough. Amen? He's enough. There'll be times in life when following Jesus closely, God will allow you to walk through a garden of Gethsemane. And you will battle seasons of distress. You will battle sorrow. And you'll battle loneliness. 
But if you prayerfully yield to the Father in those situations, in those Garden of Gethsemane times that felt like times of weakness, they'll come times of strength, not because of your strength, but because of his strength in your weakness. He is enough. And so if you're walking through a Garden of Gethsemane right now in your life, let me just encourage you. You are not, in fact, walking alone. He is faithful. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed, let me ask you this morning the same question I asked last week. When you take honest inventory of your life, would you describe yourself with integrity as a fan or as a follower? Do you follow Jesus because the benefits or the inspirational teaching or the practical help? Or are you a follower who's counted the costs and said, I'm not just here for the benefits, I'm here for the sacrifice too. If you're here this morning, you see, you know what, over the last few weeks through the preaching of God's word, God has exposed my heart as that of a fan. But I'm ready today to be a follower. If that describes you this morning, would you confess that to the Lord and say, Lord, I've been a fan for too long. Would you express to him a desire to repent or turn from that? And would you embrace him by faith and say, Jesus, from this day forward, I'm, I'm no longer a fan. I want to be a follower. I'm not just here for the benefits. I signed up for the suffering too. Whatever the cost, Lord, it's worth it. Would you receive him by faith today? Repent of your sins and receive Christ by faith today. I want to be a follower today. Maybe you're here and you are a follower. But because of various realities in your life, you are currently walking through a garden of Gethsemane. You may be battling to discern God's will, not knowing what to do in a situation. You may be battling... Obeying God's will, you know what to do, but it's just hard and you're weary. You may feel like everyone has abandoned you and you alone are standing. Whatever it is, this morning you find yourself walking through a garden of Gethsemane. If that's you this morning, I just want to pray for you to encourage you this morning. Would you just lift up your hand and say, hey, that's me. Right now I'm walking through a garden of Gethsemane in my life. Yeah, amen. Lots of you. Amen. Anybody else? Just want to pray for you. Amen? Amen. Anybody else? Father, I pray for every hand that was raised who would openly acknowledge the struggle of Gethsemane. God, I pray for hands that should have been raised, but it's too painful to even acknowledge it. Father, I pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would comfort them as you promised he would. God, I pray this week that they will be reminded that in times when the suffering is so great that they don't know how to pray, that the Spirit prays on their behalf. Encourage them with that. And God, I pray this week that they would not distance themselves from the body of Christ 
but God, they would lean into the body of Christ and that, Lord, we would walk with them and weep when they weep and encourage them so much more as we see the day approaching of your return. God, thank you for the gift of the people in this room who help us battle unbelief when we're walking through gardens of Gethsemane. God, thank you for loving us even when we fall short. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.